Hey, Julie. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm doing well. Welcome to another episode of That's Probably How It Happened. I think this is episode number 87. That's probably how it happened. I think we picked up a quarter more listener. (laughs) That brings (laughs) us to seven and a quarter? Yes, all seven of you. I, I feel like I know you personally. Oh, especially the quarter. That is my favorite listener. Anyway, we have a really special guest today. Who do we have? We have a moth-winning storyteller, a writing instructor, and a very good friend of mine who's very, very brilliant and a wonderful storyteller, David Rodriguez. Hello. How's your how did, how did you like all that praise? Are you are you turning red now because I praised you? No. no I'm not <laughs> turning red. I could be confusing you with someone else, but I think I saw you did you tell a story at the Moth Grand Slam in like early 2019? I believe I early 2019 was the Grand Slam that I did. Yeah, that, that you won, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Like, it was my first Grand Slam I ever went to, and you won. It was a great story. I remember what it was. But I'm like, oh, yeah, that was a good story. You don't remember what his story was, but you remember that it was good. It was was two and a half years ago, or a year and a half ago. I don't remember the exact story, but I remember when he won going, oh, yeah, that was a good story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was the second time I'd ever told a story. So the first time was the one that qualified me for that, and then the second time I was very, very nervous. And I worked very hard. I know that's the hardest I've ever worked on a story. I got it down to as close as I don't know, as perfect as I could. I, I mean, suppose. with the exception of the story you're going to tell today, which I imagine right, of is course, even, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, I don't think it's healthy to work that hard on a story because at the end of the day, I feel like stories are supposed to be improvisational. But I was so terrified of the size of the crowd, I just found myself thinking about it all the time, and I was just very nervous. So. Yeah, there's like 2,500 people at the Castro Theater Grand Slam in San Francisco. When the 14, moth... 1,400. But... 1,400? Okay, sorry. I deflated the number. It felt like 2,500. <laughs> it felt like 2,600 to me, but that's just me. So what is the... Um, often I try to name the podcast episodes after the themes of the stories. What is the theme of your story today, David? The theme, well, to be honest, I'm still debating between two, and I thought that I would let uh, what, I assume I wasn't going to go first, I thought that I would let sort of what whatever you guys come with kind of decide. But okay. is there a theme common to the two? I think the common two is like lost. Whoa. Like lost or, or, or transition or something like that. Or purgatory. Ooh. That's so intriguing. Now I can't wait to hear this story. It's so mysterious. Well, I was thinking of stories. Well, because I thought, oh, I'm going to be telling stories to two storytellers and we're going to talk about them. Like, I'm always really intrigued by stories that sort of don't make a good story, if you know what I mean. Like, that don't have, like, necessarily a beginning, middle, and end or all those things that a story is supposed to have from moments in your life where you're not really sure what happened and why. And, you know, you need a couple of really good friends who are into this kind of stuff to actually enjoy a story like that. So I wanted to take advantage. So I, I have two stories that are sort of um, maybe pointless <laughs> that I was debating between. But then I had like a back pocket one if I chickened out that was like just a solid story. All right. Fair enough. What is the well, of you your know, story, Julie? Wait, wait. But you know what that means? It, David thinks of us as his good friends, and he thinks of us as good storytellers. I'm in. Yes. <laughs> well, I like chatting about stories, I think, more than I like 
telling stories. Like I, I just like at the moth, all I want to do is sit and talk to everybody that just told a story. You know, that's the best part, I think. Yeah, so. well, we can do a bit of that after after oh, yeah. the stories because people come for the stories and then they stay for the banter, or they don't. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> we will never know. Um, although I was going to have us, you know, go through an exercise where we choose who's going to go first, so it's going to be somewhat random. Um, that's fine. That no, would be no, just desserts for me. We're not going to do rock scissors paper. I have a I have a new thing. Julie. Ooh, ooh, exciting new new way to pick the first storyteller. What is it? Well, we'll. I'll tell you when we get there, it is so exciting. Um, but what is the theme of your story first, Julie? Um, why do I have to say it now? Can I say it after, like we always do? Like we Fine. tell the story we ne- and we then never we do come... it that way, but and... yes, you can. <laughs> I don't know what the theme is until I tell it. I'm glad you haven't practiced your story. That's great. Um, <laughs> so the theme of my story is friendship because it's obvious. But all right, so here's what I'm going to say. So I think this week... I'm going to say, I'm going to go second, and I'm going to pick a number between 1 and 13. And you're both going to pick numbers, and whoever gets closer, you're going first. So did you did you write down the number? No, it's in my head. I already picked it. How, how do we know you're not just going to tell us who you uh, want to go Because I'm a man of honor. That is how. I don't, I don't care. I don't know about first. that, Mike. I don't know. Uh, you already that, picked yourself as going second. I did, because, yes, because I made this rule. But do, next it, time, you can do it. All right, all right. This is sounding more like bicker than banter, so I'll just go with it. (laughs) All right, so on three, both of you are going to pick a number between 1 and 13. Are you ready? 1, 2, 3. 7. 9. My number was pi, um, so Julie (laughs) is closer. Uh, So she goes first. first, Oh, boy, okay. I'll go second, and then David will be the caboose. All right, uh, okay. You ready? I am ready. I was a late bloomer, and it wasn't because I was shy, and it wasn't because I was religious. It was because all through middle school and high school, I was a radical vegetarian animal rights activist. And all I cared about was saving all the animals, and if anybody pulled out a bologna sandwich, I would tell them how that hog lived and died and try to make them put it down. So I didn't have a lot of friends, and I certainly didn't have any dates. So all of that changed when I was 17, and I got the opportunity to go to Italy as a part of a summer uh, study abroad program where you got to stay with an Italian family, and then you got to go uh, and stay with the other Americans and learn Italian in in two different locations. So suddenly, in Italy, I was not that annoying girl. I was la bella americana, the beautiful American girl. And it didn't matter that I was vegetarian because I could eat all the pasta and all the pizza and all the salad and all the gelato and even some vino, and I was happy. And if anybody, you know, found out that I didn't eat meat, they thought, well, that's just, she's American. There's a lot of weird things about her. So it was fine. And I couldn't argue with people about animal rights because I couldn't speak the language very well and I was too busy learning the name for things. Car is macchina. Bed is letto. To touch is toccare. And the mother and my host family told me to be careful around Italian men. And if anybody tried to grope me, I should say this. Giulemani! 
Julemani, which means down with your hands. <laughs> so I made friends and we would hang out in the piazzas on those hot summer nights in Italy. And I was stationed in Florence, one of the most beautiful cities in Italy, in the middle of Tuscany. And uh, I soon had a, a sweet little boyfriend in this group. And he was, a, was uh, his name was Andrea, and he was very cute. And I learned Italian by pointing to different parts of my body and asking him, how do you say this? Come si dice? So lips are labbra, and skin is pelle, and thigh is coscia. And I had this pair of little red shorts. They were soft cotton red shorts. And I was 17 and it's Italy in the summer. And me and Andrea would sit on park benches and make out. And I would actually, he would sit on the bench and then the bench had this back and then there was a gap between the seat and the back. And I would put my legs through. I would basically sit on his lap and wrap my legs around him through the bench. And the shorts would ride up. And so I would tell him, you cannot touch beyond the hem of the shorts. But then, you know, we would get excited and they would go up a little higher. And I, and, and I had this this uh, little sticky-outy mole on the on the inner thigh on my inner kosha this little brown mole and I thought okay that is going to be the new boundary non mi puoi toccare oltre questo nail which means you can't touch me beyond this mole and Andrea was a good boy and he did it but then after that uh, month ended all of us Americans all over Italy were to reconvene in another town to learn Italian in classes. And this was the town of San Gimignano. So I had to say goodbye to Andrea. And we went a couple hours later uh, further down the road to San Gimignano, which is famous for its towers. And all the Americans lived in a monastery. And so we'd have Italian lessons during the day. And then at night, me and some of the other girls would hang out in the piazzas. And that's when some Italian boys from the neighboring village tried to talk to us. And there was one that I thought was super, super cute. His name was Mario. And he looked exactly like John Stamos from Full House, that TV sitcom from like the 80s. He had thick head of black hair, really dark eyes fringed with long, luscious lashes. And he was kind of shy and very sweet. And every night, Mario would take me in his macchina, and we would go and get gelato, and then we would drive to a hilltop and eat our gelato and kiss and make out. And he tried to put his hands all over me. And Mario got to places that Andrea had not gotten to. <laughs> now this was, for me, this was fun, but it was also really emotional because nobody had ever touched me like this before. Because as I said, I was a very unpopular kid in high school. And so I didn't know why Mario wanted to touch me in these places. And I would ask him, Per che? Per che mi vuoi toccare così? Why do you want to touch me like this? And what he responded was, was like, 
to me, it was the most romantic, poetic thing. But he said it because um, I think he didn't know what else to say. He would say, which means, I don't know, it just happens. It just comes by itself. And so that kind of gave me permission. It felt natural. It felt like part of the nature of things. And so I felt okay with him, you know, petting me. And so on my very last night in Italy, the night before, I had to go back to America and I probably would never see Mario again. We had one last trip in his car. And then clothes got pushed aside and we were getting ready to 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 do it and and I got scared and it was kind of like trying to put a submarine sandwich through the mouth of a soda bottle and I said Smetti stop and he stopped and that is how I went to Italy and left Italy without ever trying the salami and not even losing my virginity. Thank you. <laughs> That's great. And, and if Mario hears this, he'll be delighted to find out he's described like a submarine sandwich or a salami. <laughs> like those are really evocative descriptions. Mario was so great and I never I never heard from him again. But I will never forget him. Isn't that amazing how people can impact your life and they probably never know what they did for you or they had no idea, but you carry it around with you for and tell stories about it, you know, 30, 30 years later. Do you know Mario's he, last name? Can you I do. find him? I have never, tr- I tried to find him the last time the, when I went back to Italy. I tried to, I went back to his village. I know the name of his village and I tried to find him. He's probably married with like a bunch of kids right now. That's what they do. I mean, normal, nice if you try Italian to boy. Google him? No. no. Mike, you always ask me this. Whenever I tell a story, you're like, do you want me to Google them? <laughs> and I always what if say Mario no. like showed up at your apartment with like a sign? <laughs> you know. what, what would the sign say? And something about the mole. I don't know. It, uh... <laughs> Mario, I'll never forget you. You literally, we could Google him right now. But I think, I think there would be a lot of people with that name. So it would be hard. I mean, although I do know the town he came from. Well, there's the plumber. Yeah, there's the plumber. There's the Mario. There's so many Marios and his last name is probably a very common last name. What would have happened if you hadn't, let's just say you met Mario, you know, in the U.S. Like you didn't have to leave. You know, like what did the, how did the knowing you were going to leave eventually like factor into that relationship? Like, I think it just made it all the more like, I'm never, I might never see you again. Let's try to have sex, (laughs) you know? And it was like so freeing because, you know, I had to learn a whole new way to communicate and it was, it was very flirtatious and it was very sweet and I wasn't in my head because I was too busy trying to understand people and learn the language and I always feel like whenever I travel to a country where I'm learning the language like Spain Italy or France I'll be like this where I know enough of the language to communicate but I'm not that good at it then I become the nicest person because I just want to understand you 
As opposed to the person you are now, which is not the nicest person. Which is, you know, the nicest. Right now, I have opinions, and I want, I, and I want things from you. I want, I want to get your, like, you know, like I want to do sound checks, you know. Whereas if I was in Italy, it'd be like, oh, everything's fine. Yeah. So when you look back at that moment later, were you like, I'm so glad, like that's like on the plane ride home, were you like, I'm so glad that we stopped right then. That was definitely, or were you like, if I could go back in time and have that evening with Mario again, maybe I would have let him go just a little bit further past the mole. (laughs) No, I mean, he was way past the mole at that point. Um, But I think for me, actually, he gave me a great gift. And and, um, it was my first real sexual experience at the ripe old age of 17. And it ended in such a such a respectful and beautiful way that I was so in love with Mario. I used to write him all these letters. He never wrote back. And I used to fantasize about him all through college, the first year of college. And, you know, he just, and he made me love all the Italians and, and, you know, just be really enamored of anybody who spoke Italian. I went back to Italy after that. Well, first I broke my leg. Then I went back to Italy after that healed. I've been to Italy nine times. I should be living there right now. But it's the pandemic. Nobody's traveling. Anyway, enough about me. What about you, David? Or no, it's Mike's turn. It is my turn. I, I was going second, as we as we described. But thank you for sharing your story. Um, and maybe we can get a picture of your mole for the, uh, the show. Oh, so, so what theme would that be, then, if you were going to give it a theme? You're supposed to decide that. You literally said, I'll come up with the theme at the end of the story. Um, I guess the theme would be close calls. <laughs> All right, fair enough. All right, so um, me. Yeah, you. So I've been a programmer computer programmer for about a thousand years. But back when I got a job a few years ago down in Palo Alto, they quickly realized they didn't need yet one more programmer. What they needed were more managers. And when they looked around the room and they saw a bunch of 20-year-olds and they saw one guy with about a thousand years of experience and a bunch of gray hair standing out, they said, oh, Mike's old. He'll be a good manager. They were wrong, but I took the gig What I soon found out is that all the people I was hanging out with and having lunch with and confiding in and going to happy hours with, I was their boss now. And that made happy hours a little less happy for everyone. And I realized I needed new friends. I needed manager friends. And so enter Colin, who transferred down from the Seattle office. And he was a new manager in our office. And he was almost as old as I was. And I thought, ah, Colin's a manager, I'm going to make him my friend. But as an adult, I'm not really good at making friends. I'm not sure how you do that. I don't have great social skills. I think my best social skill might be typing. Uh, (laughs) I'm really good at typing. I'm pretty fast. Um, But also alcohol. So I invited (laughs) Colin out for drinks. So I would get get to know him better. And so we went to um, this one restaurant bar in Palo Alto called MacArthur Park. Um, We didn't think any of the 20-year-olds would be there. And one of the things I learned about Colin in that outing was that he had a really interesting hobby. He was attempting to collect a deck of playing cards comprised entirely out of cards that he would find just on the street somewhere. 
I don't know about you, but I, I cannot recall the last time that I found a card laying on the street. Like that sounded nuts to me to be able to build a whole deck out of cards you just found on the street. And so I told him that, I'm like, you're never gonna finish this. Like that's not a thing that happens very often. He said, no, 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 I, I have been finding cards and I've, I've calculated the rate at which I find, find cards. And I've calculated the rate at which it's a card I don't already have. And so I know that I'll probably finish this project and I'll have a full deck by the time I'm 70. Which was ridiculous and stupid and absurd and charming. And I said, Colin, you are my new friend now. <laughs> and I'm lying in bed that night and I'm thinking about Colin and this project and how cool it'll be when he's done. Like to have that deck of cards, every single one of them different found in a different place, different location, looking different on his coffee table. That's an amazing project. So it's got to be so exciting for him every time he finds one of them on the ground. But it's got to be so frustrating if he flips that card over and it's one he already has. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's how I can participate. <laughs> what if I just sort of sprinkled cards around Colin's environment, but always made sure it was the exact same card, the lowliest card in the deck, the two of clubs. It'd be so frustrating. That's how I would make him my friend. Which in hindsight, I realized sounds stupid, but it made sense at the time and I was excited. So I get up the next morning and we're gamers in our house. So we have a bunch of decks of cards and I go and I dig through our decks and I find my daughter's old Winnie the Pooh deck of cards and I grab the two of clubs and I threw out the other 51 cards and I find a bunch of other decks and I grab all the two of clubs and I carry them around with me and I try leaving them in a few places where Colin might find them like outside our office building, etc. But I, I don't see him pick any up. And so I, I try to be a little more daring about it. So one night I'm out in a pub with Colin and we're standing at a table across from each other, drinking a beer. And I grab one of the cards out of my back pocket because I always have one with me. And I chuck it underneath the table between us. And he spots it almost immediately. And he picks it up and he holds it up and he said, did you drop this? <laughs> Caught. But real cool, just super smooth. I say, no, 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 what do you say? Like, the cards are just falling out of me? No, no, I didn't drop a card. No, that's crazy. No. I am not a good liar, but somehow he bought it, <laughs> and I was hooked. I went home that evening, and I logged onto Amazon, and I, can find, I found that you could buy 24 decks of cards that are from various casinos that are used, and they'll ship them to you. And so two days later, I got this 24-pack of decks, and I grabbed all the two of clubs, and I threw out the other 1,000 cards, and I put them in my backpack in my back pocket, and I carried them around for the next four years. <laughs> I left them in meetings we were at, in bars and restaurants. We would go on business trips together, and I would leave them in hotel lobbies and elevators, in Uber rides we were in. Uh, one time he was reading a book, and I managed to stick it right in the pages of the book as though it was a bookmark. <laughs> Each of these cards, I tried to distress in a different way. I would mark them, I would burn them, I would fold, spindle, and mutilate them so they always looked different. And I did that for a long time, but I didn't really see him pick up these cards. And after a few years, it was time for me to give notice of this job. And I knew I needed to bring this thing to an end, but I wanted to know if he'd been finding the cards. So that Friday, we went to MacArthur Park as we often did on Fridays. And so I left work early that Friday and as I often did, I threw one of the cards. I usually I'd throw one in the alley, but this time 
I took my card and I put it right in the bush, right in front of the <laughs> MacArthur Park door, just ramrod straight, sticking right out of that bush. And I went inside and I sat in the booth and I waited for him. And Colvin walked in five minutes later and he's holding the card. And I said, oh, uh, what do you got there? He said, it, it's a card. I said, oh, that's, that's right. You, 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 you've got that thing, the, the, the card thing you do. <laughs> said, and he said, yeah, it's weird. Like I, I found this card outside, but I found a bunch of these like in the past outside this place. And it's always the same card. It's always the two of clubs. And I said, that's so weird. Why is that? He said, well, I, I think I figured it out. I think, I think the parking valets here at MacArthur Park, <laughs> I think they hand these cards out. And I said, oh, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Good one. For <laughs> it's the all record, the same card at the valet. If, if anyone here is a parking valet <laughs> in Palo Alto, do not hand everyone the same card because you will not have any idea whose car is whose. You'll be handing the wrong Tesla keys to the wrong person in Palo Alto. It will be a fiasco. But anyway, Colin had been obviously finding the cards and he didn't know it was me. Game on. All I need to do was bring this to a close. And so the next day I called one of our common friends. I called Scott. And I said, Scott, you know that collection that Colin has where he's collecting the deck of cards? And he said, yeah. I said, well, for four years now, Scott stops me and he says, I don't know how the sentence ends, but I am in. <laughs> so Scott's thing is card tricks. And so what he needed for me was a deck comprised entirely of two of clubs. No problem. Got home that evening, logged onto Amazon, ordered 50 identical decks, got them two days later, grabbed all the two clubs. Money bags. Threw, threw out the other 2,000 cards and brought them. The next Friday, we all go to MacArthur Park and Scott is there, Colin is there, a few other people are there. We all gather in a booth and get our drinks. And Scott says, hey, I've got a card trick. Who wants to see it? And he pulls out the deck that I've given. He said, Colin, pick a card, any card. And so Colin pulls the card out of the deck, and lo and behold, it's the two of clubs, as they all are. Puts it back in the deck. Scott shuffles, cuts, shuffles, cuts, shuffles, cuts. Says, I'm going to find your card. Pulls it out. The two of clubs. Amazing. I said, I'm going to do a trick. I don't do card <laughs> tricks. But it turns out the deck is stacked. I go through the same thing, call and pick a card, two of clubs again, surprise, surprise, shuffle, cut, shuffle, cut, it's a two of clubs. Colin's looking really confused at this point, I decide it's time. And so I show Colin the deck of cards that it's all two of clubs. You should never have done that. <laughs> <laughs> I had to do it. And he, and he just looks confused. And I said, Colin, for four years now, and I laid out what had been going on and his eyes bugged out of his head. He said, no, 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 no. no. No, there was there was a card that I found in a hotel lobby in Portland. And I said, yeah, that, that one was me. He's like, no, no, but there was one I found like in an Uber. I said, yeah, that one was me. He's like, on the <laughs> way over here, there was a card I found in the alley and I picked it up and it was the two of clubs and I threw it down in disgust. I said, that was me. They were all me. He's like, I, he's like, Mike, I am not a dumb man. I understand how statistics work. But somehow, each time I found one, I just convinced myself that it just made sense, that it was, it was possible. And Colin curls up in the beetle position right there in the booth with us. And we all try to rouse him out of his stupor, and we toast to him, and we toast to his amazing 
project for collecting this deck of cards. And I go to bed that evening very proud of myself. And I, I wake up the next morning and I have an email from Colin. And it's the email subject is joy. Aww. And it says, Mike, when you're a kid, sometimes something happens that completely rewrites your understanding of the world. Like when you find out that your parents are the tooth fairy. But as an adult, that never happens. The world is the same boring place every single day. Thank you for making me feel something I haven't felt since I was a kid. Aww. It was not my intention to do anything profound, but uh, <laughs> thanks to his graciousness of spirits, we are still friends today. He is still my manager friend. Yay! Good story. Two of clubs. Why the two of clubs? I don't know if... Uh... I just, I, so I just wanted to be the crappiest card, so I knew it had to be a two, and then I Googled, like, you know, what are the order of suits? <laughs> and so I found that in some games, the clubs are deemed to be the, the lowest of all the suits. So I'm like, great, so this is the, the, the two of clubs would be the lowest possible card. That would be the one I haven't find over and over. Like, ace of spades for me would be, like, the most exciting card. Right. The two of clubs felt like the most boring card, so that should be the card that he finds over and over again. Wow, and he never once suspected you, ever? No. That's amazing. You must be a really good liar, even though no, you I'm don't a, think you are. I'm a terrible liar. You say think... that, but I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know if I can trust you now, Mike. I don't know. But the addendum is, so uh, we're in a, a Slack team together, and he's created a little channel where he keeps, he's posted a spreadsheet with all the cards that he's found. Uh-huh. He only has four left to find. He's oh really close. Oh my like God. he's four cards away. From do you do you have temptation to give it to put those cards no, in his path? Not one, not one bit. I will, I will let this come to fruition, completion. Tell me the cards. I'll do it. I will not. <laughs> oh man, it must be hard to find those last four or the last right? one. It must be. Yeah, like exactly. When impossible. you're down to one. With the, if all you need is like the nine of, of spades, what are the odds you're going to find that? But I mean, what I've never noticed a playing card on the ground anywhere. Dave, have you ever seen like a playing card? I feel like it's like, I'm going to see them everywhere now. That's what yeah, I think you, is going to happen. I think for the rest often. of my life, now that I've heard this story, I'm going to see playing cards on the ground everywhere. And I'm going to be like, holy cow, I never noticed before. He has rules of engagement. If he finds like multiple cards at once, he can only pick one card out of, the, out of the set. That's... He can't yeah, if all. somebody drops a whole entire deck, which is much more likely. Oh, right, right, exactly. right, 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 right. It has to be a solo card. No, he can. if he finds multiple, that's fine, but he can only pick one out of that group. Well, maybe he'll find a deck then, and he'll be able to pick one of his missing four. Maybe. David lives in the basement of a fancy French restaurant, which is why you're hearing the pots and pans in the bathroom. In the background, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say he lived in the basement of a casino. I'm like, oh my God, are there cards there? It's okay, David. We just we just found a reason for your pots and pans in the background, so it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, you want to... Well, you know, you can't control everything in these complicated times. People are stuck st- stuck inside together. I can almost smell the things that are frying in the background. Stand <laughs> down, Julian. Stand down. 
No, we, me and Julie have a long history of me letting her down when it comes to my lighting or, you know, sound quality or my eye contact. I, I'm with you. I get feedback every episode on what I what I screwed up on. Yeah, editing and the I podcast. thought, oh, it's a podcast. I, I like sat down already to be nervous with Julie's production <laughs> skills, and I'm like, oh shoot, I didn't think about where my camera placement or my lighting. I'm like, but you know what? It's a podcast. I'm golden. Like, well, there's nothing. Nothing's gonna. What, and then you have the pod banger in the background. David, I understand you have a, a story to tell us. I do. Would, would now be the time for the story. So, yeah, it's the right time. Let's do it. So, when you are going to become a teacher, working in a public school, although the public school part I don't think is really the part of it, you hear that it's the hardest job ever. But you think that you're special. You know, you think that you're going to, because like you're a cool guy, you're going to connect with these kids. You're going to have some great ideas. You're, you're not going to be that boring. I mean, yeah, those people suck. That. And my first year as a teacher, I was so bad. I, I knew that it would be hard, but I didn't expect to be so bad at it. Like I didn't expect to just have evidence every day that I was pushing kids further away from their dreams. You know, and to not only have stress that was so extreme that, like, I remember I could feel it in my eyeballs, but just to, to feel like I was failing these kids, you know, these kids that, and I had this class that had, was going through so much trauma, and I won't share details because I am sensitive to the fact that these are real people, but just a, it was a disproportionate amount of trauma in my class, even for a, um, a class of kids and, you know, East LA in a, in a, in a, in a neighborhood that was, you know, being, you know, in a, in a neighborhood where, uh, the kids in their plight get largely ignored, uh, by society. Um, I'm very careful about the way I characterize these neighborhoods because I don't want to make it seem like the neighborhood has a problem, a society that has a problem. Um, it's society that has the problem. But, uh, you know, at any given moment, I had like three kids just freely roaming the city of Los Angeles, you know, and and, and then you're in this catch 22 where you, you can't like you to go find the kids that just ran out of your classroom screaming. You have to leave the other kids and risk, you know, endangering them. And so, you know, and then, of course, the phone in your classroom doesn't work. And I, I just uh remember this day my principal came into my classroom and he sat down with me and he's like you know I'm not going to be able to hire I'm not going to be able to keep you you can't keep I'm not going to be able to keep you on you know it's just not working you know and uh, boy that was hard to hear Um, but uh, he was right like I was really just bad at this like the class next door and and what made it so hard was the class next door was another first-year teacher, Miss Ung. And her class, man, that thing ran like a clock. You know, she was, they were all lined up, perfectly spaced apart, you know. they were, Like, she'd say, time for recess, and they'd be like, aww, you know, like, because they wanted to, like, stay in her class and keep learning, you know. And so it was just this counterpoint that just showed it's not just that you're a first-year teacher. It's not just that it's hard. It's not just that it's, you know, uh, 
a, a poverty-stricken neighborhood. It's like really, it's you. You know, she was she was she was what stopped me from being able to blame anyone but myself because she was so perfect. You know, and I would like be crying every day, and she would she would be smiling and, and laughing with her kids. And the only thing left of the year, you know, my final first and final year as a teacher, the only moment left was um, our whale watching trip. Mm. And I was going to take these kids whale watching. And it was the whole grade level. So Miss Ung, superstar teacher next door, and my class, we were going whale watching together. And we were, we were taking two different boats. My class was going to be on one boat, and her class was going to be on the other boat. So we, we, we roll up to the docks, and Miss Ung starts passing out gin, gum to all her kids. I was like, why are you giving them gum? Like, what's that about? She's like, it's ginger gum. And I was like... Why are you giving, giving them ginger gum? I didn't understand. Maybe some people in the audience are understanding already, but uh, I learned later it's for motion sickness, you know. And uh, she was super prepared, and I, you know, her kids were all sitting quietly, you know, and they all had clipboards, and they're all sitting along the dock waiting for the boat with their clipboards and their pencil ready to make scientific observations. And mine are like playing tag, running around, like I don't even like they're everywhere. They don't have any gum. And we get on these boats. Her kids line up on her boat really neatly. And then our kids get on our boat. And, uh, you know, this, the, the, this one kid asks me, she's like, uh, Mr. Rodriguez, is it okay if we buy food, candy from the, from the gift shop? Because the boat itself has a gift shop. And we had a rule that you couldn't, but I thought, who cares? Like, I'm getting fired and... It's their last trip of the year. Sure, go ahead, have it. So the kids all run up to buy candy with their loose change. And, and then the boat takes off, and the kids are so excited. It's really just like a delightful moment because they have never, many of them, had, they had never been on a boat before. And there was even one kid that said he had never seen the ocean before, and he lived in Los Angeles. And it's starting to feel like a nice moment, like a nice way to say goodbye to these kids. And I'm starting to feel like, hey, I've really bonded with these kids, you know, as we're heading out to sea. And... But then, then the dolphins came. They start leaping out of the water, and my kids, they all just lost their, sh- they just lost their <laughs> shit. They just went crazy. They, the dolphins are jumping, and they just lose their mind, and they all run to the bow of the boat, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, you know, and there's like tourists on the boat that are getting like knocked over and stuff, and these dolphins are leaping. And, and I look over and I see all of Miss Ong's kids like perfectly spaced in the bow, like taking scientific observations in the dolphins, like, you know, and she's, I, she's watching me, you know, I feel like through binoculars or something. And, uh, except one student of mine who was just looking out at the ocean, forlorn, named Naomi. And the reason why she was looking so forlorn is because I had pretty much guaranteed these kids they were going to see a whale. You know, we'd been studying whales, and she had her heart set on a whale. And none of the other, as soon as the other kids saw the dolphins, they didn't care anymore. But she cared. She didn't want to see dolphins. She wanted to see a whale. You know, and she was just the greatest kid, too. You know, she was the hardest working kid. Her mom, uh, her mom worked nights, and... Uh, and we did these parent workshops where we'd like teach parents how to help their kids with the science fair. And this kid whose mom worked in the evening, so her mom couldn't come, would come on her own 
the parent workshop to learn to like guide herself to the science fair. That's the kind of human being this kid was. She was just determined, and, and, and she just wanted a whale. And it was like, I just couldn't give it to her. Like, I couldn't make a whale appear, you know. And also, I couldn't spend too much time either on her because kids started to play tag, you know, on the boat, and they are just running all over. And then this, 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 the girl that asked me if she'd buy candy, I watched she just projectile vomited all over the <laughs> side of the ship. And because she had bought, like, $20 worth of airheads, it was, like, all the colors of the rainbow, <laughs> you know. And... Uh, that's what the dolphins were after. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That attracted more dolphins. Maybe we got some sharks in there. And, and, the, and I was so overwhelmed that I just I was looking over at, at uh, this disaster of a scene. You know, I just wanted a nice last moment with my, with my students. And as funny as it is now to look back on, I was just really sad. I just felt terrible because I could see the whole time. This, I can't get away. Like she was in the classroom next door and then I go out to the ocean and she's on the boat next door and the kids are perfectly behaved and they're all learning. And my kids are screaming at each other and throwing up all over the place and they're all seasick. And, you know, one of them was having a panic attack because she was afraid of boats and I, I afraid of the ocean. And, uh, and then there's Naomi just looking out, wanting to see a whale. And I just found myself fixating on her and I just felt like it would all be okay if she would just see a whale. Like, all this could go away. I could make peace with this whole disastrous year of my life if Naomi just got to see a whale. Just God let Naomi see a whale, please. And it doesn't happen. Mm. We don't see a whale. And we pull into the dock, and all the kids are filing out, and this woman comes up to me. I think she was from Minnesota, and she says, I just want you to know that you ruined this vacation for my family. And I, it just, I just, it just, it just felt, it just fit right into all the little self-defeating like buckets I'd set up in my heart. It was just like, yep, yeah, let me just, that fits right. I already have a space for that. Thank you. I already cleared out the space. Put that right in there. And we're filing out. And Naomi, as we're going out, Naomi stops. And the captain's like, bye, kids. Bye. Bye. Great to have you. And Naomi, who didn't get to see well, she comes up, she goes up to the captain. She like goes to the crowd. She goes up to the captain and she said, we didn't see any whales. And he goes, yes, you did. You saw over 300 whales. Dolphins are whales. <laughs> this is technically true. <laughs> but Naomi wrinkled up her nose and she put his, her finger in his face and she goes, dolphins aren't whales. <laughs> and then she stormed off. And I remember the captain and the people in line behind Naomi, because Naomi held up the line to do that, you know, people trying to get off the boat, all looked and they <laughs> saw this kid who was just like a punk kid from East L.A. that just had an attitude. But I saw just like a future female president of the United States, right, that like wasn't going to let anything stop her. And I was just like, I have to keep doing this, you know, because one you know, if you're, it's sort of like Naomi's power, like gave me power. It's like one, you know, you know, if you're ever going to get excited in life, like when there's fucking dolphins jumping out of the water next to you, you know, like that's not the time to have a clipboard and a notebook and take sign. That's the time to lose your mind because nature <laughs> is literally winking at you. Like, and two, I wanted to keep doing this. You know, I wanted to keep, I wanted to get better at it. And I, and I went in up to my principal uh, the next day and I said, what, what would it take for me? To, to, what would I, what do I need to do? Mm. You know, let's make a plan. And uh, the story of executing that plan is a long one filled with a lot of hard work. But I'm still doing it 10 years later. 
and uh, you know it, it, it goes it, it goes pretty well now. But uh, I, I think it was that group of kids and that whale watching trip that sort of made me feel like I need to I need to keep at this. Um. Amazing! Wow, <laughs> good story. I was going to ask. Clearly, you must have gotten fired from that job, but then you found another one. But no, like that that principle that said he was going to fire you kept you on. Yeah, I just sort of, I went to this um, kindergarten teacher who was just this miracle worker of a kindergarten teacher. Like, I remember the very first day of school, she had everything set up perfectly. And this one kid went screaming out of the classroom. And this kindergarten teacher, you know, and all the parents are there because they're all like taking, you know, they're all lined up. They're all like the kindergarten class is like, is like a, the front of, you know, the, the Academy Awards, you know, the red carpet, like on the first day of school. So it's a lot, all the attention. And they're all watching her manage the situation of this kid who's been screaming out. And she's got all the other kids waiting. And she walks up to him and she says, you need to come back to the class right now. And then um, he, and said he takes off his shoes and throws them. Oh, wow. And then she said, you're going to pick up your shoes, put them on, and you're going to be in class and then she just turned around and walked away. And then he did it. And, uh, and, and she had like the most amazing class. So I just went to her and I said, I need to know how to do what you do. And she mm -hmm. said, but I teach kindergarten. I said, I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'll do whatever you do. I don't, cause I taught uh, third grade. So she, she said, okay. And so she just came and she helped me like rearrange my classroom. I just did everything she did as best I could. And it turns out that what works for kindergarten was pretty well for. She's like a ninja Jedi teacher. Yeah, it's just like the things you don't notice, you know, like if my girlfriend walked into this apartment right now, she would notice all these tiny little things that were out of whack, right? And they would drive her crazy, things that I don't notice unless I try to put myself in her perspective. And that's, the kids are the same way. They need order, they need this structured environment, they need peace, they need things to be clean, but they don't advocate for it, you know, mm -hmm. they don't know how to articulate it. And, mm -hmm. and, and when you, you, you have to sort of, get an eye for all those little tiny details that that they that affect them but that they don't they're not aware of that affect mm -hmm. them you know and it's not something that came naturally to me i'm not mm. you know a natural elementary school teacher <laughs> and now i'm a middle school teacher but. so 10 years later what has happened to naomi have you followed up should we google her what's her no, last name um... that's not really her name her really her name is actually Kamala Harris, and she is now going to be the Vice President of the United States of America. Ten years later. <laughs> Naomi was very, very special, and she, you know, she really did that thing I mentioned where, um, you know, it was this parent-child workshop for the science fair, and she just came by herself and sat in the back of the room and took notes, you know. Mm. That is amazing. So, but David, what would you think is the theme of that story then? I, for me a lot, I think a lot about the quote, dolphins aren't whales. You know, because I just feel like when he said the dolphins were whales, like it just triggered something inside of her. And it's sort of like the part of me that just tries to follow the rules that everyone else sets out, like thinks it's bullshit that anyone would say a dolphin was a whale. I did not know that. And I literally Googled I mean, it while we were chatting and sure enough, dolphins are whales. I, I almost expect it that. to be different every time I look it up. Like I say, is it really? What did I get? No. Okay, you know, and that captain was so <laughs> smug. He's like. This little girl who is heartbroken and not seeing a whale, and he goes, you saw over 300 whales. 300 whales. Come on. I think it's like berries. My daughter will go on a rant about how everything that you think of as a berry is not actually a berry. 
Um, and I think in the same way... They call grapes berries. I think everything you think of as not being a berry is a berry. Tomatoes are berries. Grapes are berries. But that's not true. Dolphins are not berries. <laughs> um, dolphins. I can't believe that dolphins are whales. I always thought there was dolphins and then there was whales and they were somehow distinct. Distinctly they are different. distinct. Well, then why they do they... I googled that. I, I found Mario. I've done a bunch of useful <laughs> googling all throughout this. And I think with that, that's a wrap. It's over. <laughs> it's over. Thank you, David. Thank you, David, for adding some gravitas to our banter. And Oh, I didn't want to add gravitas. <laughs> it just kind of happened. Well, we will see y'all next time. Write us a review. Leave us a five-star review. If you think this show was less than five stars... Just find another show to watch or listen to. Don't even don't even leave us a review at all. Just find something that you like better that resonates with you. Because we only want the five stars. Thank you. Bye.